Hello there, and welcome to this, the second edition of The Sound of Astronomy, your very own astronomical magazine in sound. In this edition, we feature a special report on the tracking of America's Lunar Orbiter 1 and include other news, views, and interviews. This is The Sound of Astronomy. One of the most successful of the recent American space triumphs was the Lunar Orbiter series. The mission was to seek out landing sites for the first Americans on the Moon. In doing so, it sent back some of the most spectacular lunar photographs yet seen. It also captured the first photograph of the Earth from deep space. At this time, our roving reporter, Mr. Adrian Egan, was fortunate enough to be in South Africa, where he visited the Heart of Beers Hook Satellite Tracking Station, which is part of the National Aeronautic and Space Administration Deep Space Network. Adrian, tell us something about your visit to the station. Well, Hazel, it was certainly a very fascinating one. It was uh, a combined social occasion as well as a scientific one because uh, the space technician at the station that I managed to interview, David Marks, also happens to be a very close friend of mine. So it was altogether a very interesting um, tour of the station. And while I was there and he was showing me the equipment, um, I asked him whether the Hartigersuk satellite tracking station was playing a vital role in modern space research. Oh, yes, very definitely, particularly, of course, in the American space program for which we are a prime station, I see. Now, of course, the importance of the Heart of Beersook Station, or if you like, its more technical name, DSI-51, can have nothing to do with South Africa's excellent viewing conditions from a purely visual astronomical point of view, because, of course, radio telescopes are not much affected by climatic conditions. So what, in fact, is the principal significance of the station? Well, South Africa is very important because of its geographical position on account of the launch site, of Cape Kennedy is so close that satellites coming over from Cape Kennedy in order to get into the plane of the ecliptic for interplanetary deep space probes has to pass over Johannesburg to get into this launch window of the tour. And we are in such a position that um, we acquire spacecraft normally before any other station would, being on the, the launch side of the trajectory. There is of course a new station that has just gone up and that is the Marconi on Ascension Island, but it is much smaller than ours. So uh, ours doesn't lose its importance as a result? No, it's not. Uh, now, David, would you briefly, of course, it has to be facilities and equipment at the station, the size of the dishes and so on, and how our station compares with other similar stations? Yes, uh, well, how the Beershook station is really divided into two separate stations, each performing a completely different function mm -hmm. with respect to the other. There's Minitrack up on the top of the hill, Minitrack being primarily concerned with orbital satellites, in other words, satellites of the Earth itself, which orbit about 115 miles above the Earth's surface. Really, you can hardly even call it out of space yet. And um, this dish, the prime dish, is a 44-foot dish. Then we have done Valley, the Deep Space Station, this is what deep DSIS stands for, Deep Space Instrumentation Facility. I see, and the 51 in that? Well, station number 51. I see. And this Deep Space Station, down in the valley, deals only with deep space probes, as, as the name implies, probes to the Moon, to Mars, to Venus, and interplanetary space icy, yes. And um, this dish is 86 feet in diameter, and um, the power of this dish, you'll be astounded to note that um, 
It is capable of receiving a signal of 10 watts strength from the distance of Mars. Now, <laughs> 10 watts, yes, 10 watts is about the power given out by a, a torch lamp. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. So it's like using an optical telescope to see a torch lamp on Mars. Absolutely incredible. And the um, other facilities at the station apart from the dish? Well, there's the, the electronic side of it, of course, very important. There's receiver section, which receives these signals and processes for the other systems. Yes. There's server antenna connected to receiver section, this drives the dish. Um, sometimes as far as one degree a second, depending on how the speed of lead. Yes, depending on the, the craft's rate. Of and um, then we have transmitter, which um, takes command sent from the command console mm. and transmits it of course to the satellite. There's the computer, the computer system. This processes the incoming signals as well as uh, setting up the signal for transmission. Yes. Then there's data supplying time. The time incidentally is extremely accurate, more accurate than most observatory signals. Really? Working, yes, working on a resbidium standard. This um, is never more than three microseconds out within a year. In a whole year. In a whole year, yeah. Absolutely wonderful. I don't know whether Greenwich Don Hurstman so is going to like you very much for that. I very much. Would you say that, in fact, uh, you have more accurate time signals than uh, even the Royal Observatory at Yes, I'm quite sure. Uh, now, at the time of this recording, the station is, of course, occupied with lunar orbiter. Uh, but would you like to briefly talk about how to be a sort of very important part in the success of other recent spacecraft? Yes, um, well, we had the, the Mariner. Um, as you know, Mariner 5 um, was a probe to Mars, to take photographs of, of Mars, and our station was a prime station for receiving these photographs, and um, they come in in the form of TTY tapes of, in the computer. Yes. This is puncture tape, um, and um, an average exposure lasts about an hour and a half. The, the spacecraft takes an instantaneous picture, but its own computer takes an hour and a half to translate and travel into those languages. And then we, once again, receive it here, and our computer retranslates into a photograph, and that's how, <laughs> that's how we got it. And uh, that was man at Mars, yes. There are other recent craft. And um, oh, incidentally, you'd be curious to note that one of those people you met there. Yes. Um, I won't mention his name because it wouldn't mean anything anyway to the listeners. But um, this guy's got a nickname of Goldfinger because he had to press the button commanding those to take the photograph. <laughs> yes, I remember both. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, the Ranger program came up of which the first hostiles in the swing completely, and then one highly successful, as you know. And um, after Ranger came Surveyor, yeah. which lands, had a soft landing on the moon itself, and, and did beautiful close-ups of, of the surface, the, the outlying rock. What were the main things that Harder Beersop was concerned with in that? Uh, primarily with the photographs. It received something like 10,000 photographs. Good. Beautiful. And um, there were other... Ob uh, objects of interest that they uh, performed, for example, um, one thing that they performed, didn't quite get around to it, was to take a picture of a lunar sunset. Yeah. And they sent out um, uh, Dr. Brebilovich from the States, especially for this purpose. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, the spacecraft had been very taxed by this time and died out just before the sunset. So. And I believe, though, that Harvard-Bezok uh, Station is the only one in the world that was capable of uh, dealing with that lunar sunset. Uh, 
project if it had come off? Yes, um, because of our position and, and because of the positions of the other tracking stations, we were the only one that would be in direct receiving line from the spacecraft at the time of Lunar Sunset Fort Survey. Oh, it's a pity that it just didn't come off. Yes, it was a bit of a gamble, but it was quite a scoop. Um, but what about Lunar Orbiter? Um, well, our station was only a backup for the launch. And from now on, we don't have anything more to do with it. In orbit, it has been taken a photograph of the Earth, a very historic photograph of yes, the Earth. Be wonderful, wasn't it? Beautiful. Well, thank you very, very much indeed, David, for telling us all about the Heart of Yosuk Satellite Tracking Station. It's been a pleasure, and uh, thank you very much indeed. Well, Adrian, that was very interesting. Um, were you able to catch a glimpse of the booster of Lunar Orbiter as it passed over the tracking station? Uh, well, not actually as it passed over the tracking station, because I wasn't at the tracking station at the time. In fact, I was in the centre of Johannesburg on the roof of my block of flats at the time. But I was able to record a direct telephone link with the tracking station on the night of the uh, launching of Lunar Orbiter 1. And that uh, space technician that you heard in the interview, David Marks, was uh, very kind in uh, speaking to me on the telephone at the time of the launching. And um, <clears throat> we didn't, unfortunately, catch a glimpse of the booster rocket itself. At the tracking station, they didn't, and we on our rooftop in Johannesburg didn't. It appears to have been uh, less spectacular than they had expected. But anyway, the experiment of recording um, a direct link with the uh, tracking station was, I think, a very interesting one. And um, we certainly got some uh, intriguing information and tension mounted as the moment of launching approached. Hello, David. So you're speaking from what part of the station? From the workshop now. I see. Um, the countdown is proceeding normally. Yes. Good. Uh, just the, it should be launched in about 20 minutes. This is Lunar Orbiter. This is going to go um, into orbit around the moon. Um, it'll orbit about 26 miles from the surface. And in the equatorial belt of the moon. Yes. It takes about 150 photographs.
apologize to the listeners for the rather poor quality of that recording, but I'm sure they'll understand that recorded telephone conversations are never particularly uh, clear. If they were listening carefully, though, I'm sure they must have picked up something of interest anyway. Yes, I'm sure they must have. You say you went onto the roof to see the booster, but mm -hmm. um, you didn't manage to see anything of it. Did you make any interesting observations while you were up there? Uh, well, I don't know about interesting observations, but um, interesting from the point of view of the English listeners, I think yes, because um, we had a tape recorder up there with us, and uh, what I did was recorded um, a description of the southern hemisphere skies as they appeared to me at that particular time, and I thought that the English listeners would be, uh, and those, of course, who have never been south of the equator, would be interested to uh, hear a live description of the southern hemisphere skies. Oh, perhaps you could hear this now, please. This is Adrian Egan speaking to you from the roof of a tall building in the centre of Johannesburg in South Africa, and a friend, Christopher Calver, and I have just come up onto the roof in order to try and catch a glimpse of the booster rocket of the American Lunar Orbiter. I'm going to briefly describe to you now the sky as it is at the moment, a very brilliant and conspicuous constellation of Scorpio, whose tail unfortunately is never visible from England, is almost overhead, but is more or less beginning to move towards the west with the constellation of Sagittarius slightly over towards the east, containing the brightest part of the Milky Way. The Southern Cross at this moment is lying more or less on its side in the southwest, followed, of course, by the brilliant stars Alpha and Beta Centauri, the two closest first magnitude stars in the entire sky. Almost directly due north is the brilliant star Vega, circumpolar, of course, from uh, the latitudes of England, and much higher up, at approximately the same latitude as Polaris is from the latitudes of England, is the brilliant star Altair in Aquila. And, of course, between Vega and Altair, the Northern Cross, or Cygnus, looking rather peculiar from these far southerly latitudes. Over towards the southeast is the southern constellation of Gruss, the Crane, and below it, or in this case, really towards the east, the brilliant first magnitude star, Sovelboat, which in fact is the most southerly first magnitude star visible from England. Over very much towards the northwest, sinking very rapidly in fact, and now only at an altitude of roughly 10 degrees, if you will agree with that, Christopher, is the bright star Arcturus. Christopher, would you like to comment? Arcturus at the moment is more on the line of view where this satellite should come from. And at the moment, I'd say it's dimmed by at least one and a half to two magnitudes. Um, I would say that we've got very little chance of seeing this thing if we haven't already missed it. Anyway, I'll just give you back to Adrian at the moment. Uh, thank you very much, Christopher. Now, I agree with you. I don't think we've got any chance at all, in fact, of seeing this booster now, because according to my watch, South African Standard Time, just before 10 p.m., or Greenwich Mean Time, just before 8 p.m., it is considerably past the um, expected time of appearance of this booster rocket, and it hasn't appeared yet, so the chances are that we have, in fact, missed it due to the haze, or simply to the fact that it wasn't as conspicuous as it was expected to be. I think our best plan would be to uh, return to the telephone, where we're in direct communication with the Hartabiersburg Satellite Tracking Station. Unfortunately not, no. Yes. Neither did we actually. <laughs> Everyone over there was looking, were they? Yes. 
up at uh, about twenty to uh, ten, and we were up there for about a good twenty minutes or more, and we saw absolutely nothing. Yes. Well, actually, um, we inquired at about two minutes to ten. I see. There's the actual time we picked it up, oh. and then um, we checked right over to it, and I went down in the east again. But um, of course, it wasn't visible to the, to the naked eye. So it's now out of your range at this moment. And you expect to reacquire it when? In about three and a half hours. I see. Now, are all systems functioning normally? Everything A1? Yes, perfectly well. Everything is uh, functioning normally? Every single thing. Good. That's absolutely wonderful. Well, um, David, I think what we'll do now is hang up. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for all your help. Okay. Bye-bye, dear David. Well, Adrian, I'm sure our listeners must have found that, that very interesting. Well, I certainly hope so. And maybe next time we hear from you, you'll be at the South Pole. <laughs> <laughs> so we come to the end of the first side of this edition of The Sound of Astronomy. Now over to the second track. This, believe it or not, is the second part of the Sound of Astronomy. The members of the Croydon Astronomical Society, whom you can now hear in merry mood, may soon themselves be facing the problems of the drunken sailor when they sail the seas to Iceland. Here's John Mathers. The Croydon Astronomical Society and the Cambridge University Astronomical Society have both, in the past, led expeditions to Iceland in order to survey the volcanic features there and to compare them with the features on the moon. Now this year, the Croydon Astronomical Society is again holding an expedition, only this time on a much larger scale. I have with me Mr. John Marsh, who is quite well known in JAS circles, who is going to say a few words about this expedition. Now, John, why exactly are you going to Iceland? First of all, I'd better give you my own personal history of these trips. It all started with Patrick Moore. I read an account of his own trip to Iceland, and I decided it would be a good place to go to as a holiday. The holiday turned into an expedition of sorts, and almost by accident we surveyed the um, lunar-type crater, um, Quirfell. Um, this inspired John Murray to go back the next, next year and uh, resurvey um, the crater, plus another... Um, similar one. Um, these surveys, however, are mainly topographical, though John Murray did a certain amount of geological work in 66. The uh, main work done for the 67 expedition will be geological, and it will uh, be done for the lunar group of the University of London um, under Dr. Gilbert Fielder to collect samples of lava. Um, he will, his group will analyse them when they get back to the University of London. They sort of do all sorts of things with them, melt them in vacuums, and then analyse how they reflect light and all that. However, this is not the only thing the expedition is doing. Uh, there is an entirely separate programme 
This is a survey of a section of the Hobshockle ice cap. Um, the Croydon Astronomical Society has a tradition of mountaineering. Don't ask me why. All I can tell you is that the Liverpool Astronomical Society also has the same. And um, what this leads to, in fact, that a certain number of members are interested in going onto the ice cap, which is about the size of Surrey. And we're organising um, a topographical survey of a limited region plus a gravimetric survey. John Murray is also thinking of um, taking ice temperatures as well. Um, this must be quite a thing to organise. It sounds very ambitious. How many people are going on it exactly, and do we know any of them? Um, yes, 18 are going all together, nine on the Hofschokel survey and um, nine on the geological and um, survey. Um, two people you might well know, um, one is Jim Muradin, the well-known author, and the other is Peter Catamol, um, a prodigy of Patrick Moore, who's well-known for his lunar work. And I believe uh, Ian Ridpath's going too. Oh, is Ian Ridpath representing the lunar group of the University of London? There are, of course, several other people. You know John Murray and various other members of the Croydon group. What, what about um, transport? This must present some difficulty getting there and carting people around, glasses and things. Sounds terribly complicated. We hope to obtain three Jeeps or Land Rovers. Um, hope to obtain them cheaply or gratis. Um, this will be one of the most difficult part, almost, of the trip obtaining this stuff. We need lots of um, free food. Um, various other things. The trip will cost about a thousand pounds more than we can afford. Um, about how much is each person paying then, or don't you know? Uh, yes, we've worked it out. What we intend to pay for those earning money, that's about a dozen, they'll uh, pay seventy pounds. For those, for the students, which are about half a dozen, they'll be paying fifty pounds. So in other words, this is quite ambitious for for young people. Quite a lot to save up, really. Yes, in fact, some of them have taken temporary jobs to try and raise the money. Also, equally difficult, perhaps even more difficult, is to get the time off. Easy for the students, those earning. Do you find it's very easy to, to get grants or to obtain recognition? No. What, what have you done about this so far? Well, we've written to the Royal Astronomical Society, um, the Royal Geographical Society, and the British Astronomical Association, I hope for RGS recognition especially. That's the one we need because several other firms will give us some free stuff if we get their recognition. Well, I hope that, that when you come back um, we can have another chat and perhaps more, more detail on what you've been doing over there and if you're successful or not. Yes, I do hope to come back and give it that detail. If you don't fall down a crevasse. Telescoping Topic at a recent meeting of the Royal Astronomical Society, Dr Ingram reported some observations of the zodiacal light. This is due to dust particles in interplanetary space, which glow faintly on either side of the sun in the plane of the ecliptic. Dr Ingram's calculated from the observations that the dust is 10,000 times denser near the Earth than it is between the planets, and that the dust near to the sun has been scorched black by the intense radiation. In fact, almost as black as soot. The International Aeronautical Federation are working out just what achievements in the race for the moon will go down as records. The president of the IAF, 
Major General Vladimir Kokinaki of the US USSR, said that the closest approach to the moon and duration of flight in the circumlunar orbit would count as records, but not the date of landing on the moon or the duration of stay on the lunar surface. The reason for this, according to Pravda, is because the moon is a natural satellite on the, of the Earth and not a flying apparatus. <coughs> Soviet astronomer Nikolai Kozyarev, who discovered an atmosphere within the rings of the planet Saturn, has established that the atmosphere around Saturn is 5 to 10 kilometers wide. The atmosphere, which is most clearly visible between the planet and the inner edge of the rings, is very rarefied, with a density of about 1,000 millionth of that of the Earth's atmosphere. The astronomer believes that the atmosphere within the rings of Saturn appeared as a result of collisions of meteoric particles. He says there's proof of the presence of water vapor and crystals of ice in the atmosphere within the rings. Many of us might dream of being allowed to see the great telescopes in the United States. Someone who was able to do this trip was Mr. E.W.H. Selwyn, the chief physicist at the Kodak Research Laboratories. I asked him how he got the opportunity to go around these great observatories. Well, what happened was that Dr. Lees asked me if I'd write a book on photography and astronomy uh, for Eastman Kodak, and said that he thought I knew enough about photography to do this, but ought to learn something about astronomy. And for this purpose, I'd better go around and see the observatories, some of the observatories in the United States, and also talk to the people who were really working on astronomy. And this indeed I did. Um, I see most of the big observatories in the United States, Yerkes, Lick, Mount Hamilton, uh, the Lowell Observatory at Flagstaff, and um, Mount Wilson, of course. There wasn't any 200-inch um, telescope at that time. So, in fact, the 100-inch at Mount Wilson was the largest telescope in the world at that time. That's right. That's the do you actually have a look at the 100-inch telescope? Well, yes, I had a look at it. In fact, I had a look through it, I suppose you might say, because the man who was observing at the time I was in the dome at night asked if I'd like to guide the telescope for him. And this I tried to do. It's an awe-inspiring experience. You sit on a chair without any legs stuck on the end of a girder about 30 foot into the dome, about 30, foot, 30 feet above a very hard concrete floor. And there you sit with your eye glued to a little eyepiece and a weapon in each hand with which you can move the telescope up or down or to either side. And you do this as best you can. The fundamental trouble with that operation is, of course, you don't know which way the star's going to move. And you have to guess this more or less. You're continually chasing a thing which uh, moves, flickers around. You just do your best to hold it within a reasonable area of the uh, over the middle of the crosswires. In fact, it's jolly distressing at times because the damn star explodes and disappears from view, and you have to wait for it to come back. And when it comes back, it's in a slightly different position from what it was before, and you're not absolutely certain, at least I wasn't, that it was uh, 
the same style. I kept guiding on it just the same. I see. This jumping around was due to the atmospheric turbulence. Oh, yes, this is atmospheric turbulence. Yes. Mind you, if I'd been the astronomer who was observing at the time, I'd have had the shutter closed, and I've since come to the conclusion that, that in fact, is what he did. What are conditions that Mount Wilson like from the astronomical point of view? I imagine they're very good. They're marvellous. The weather conditions, of course, they say they can observe satisfactorily on over 300 nights in the year. Uh, I'm told, at least I was told, that um, the, the conditions are not perfect, uh, but they're very good. Uh, there are stations where the, where the scene can be much better than it is at Mount Wilson, but only on very rare occasions. I see. Did you have a chance to use any of the other telescopes at Mount Wilson? Oh, yes. I um, did some visual observations on star magnitudes uh, for a man who, with whom I had become quite friendly. Uh, these were a matter of... of photometric comparisons between two stars. He had a little piece of apparatus uh, doing something which I did, didn't understand. He told me what to do and I made the necessary observations. I was always very pleased with the fact that he said that they were the best observations he'd had for some time. <laughs> Points from the post. It's always gratifying to receive letters of comment from our listeners, and one such letter comes all the way from New Zealand. Mr. T. McLennan of Omaru, New Zealand, writes, Dear Sound of Astronomy, I just wish to say that I enjoyed your tape-recorded magazine immensely. Two friends of mine, one a member of JAS, enjoyed it very much as well. I look forward to hearing your next edition. Yours sincerely, Thomas McLennan. Well, thank you very much, Mr. McLennan, for your kind comments. A rather complex question has come to us from Mr. Christopher Hum of Farningham, Kent. He writes, Dear Sound of Astronomy, A friend of mine told me about a theory concerning the escape velocity of stars, but I couldn't give my opinion about it as I don't know very much about the subject. The theory is that somewhere in the universe there could be stars whose escape velocity exceeds the speed of light. Now the reason for this is because these stars are very dense and massive. They would then be invisible because light could not be emitted. Now, would you please tell me your opinion on this <laughs> probably ridiculous theory? Yours sincerely, Christopher Hum. Well, Mr. Hum, we took your question to a professional astronomer to answer, and here is Alan Wright of Mill Hill Observatory. No, the theory is not ridiculous, but it would mean we'd have to have an extremely high density, about a thousand million million times that of water. But this theory has been suggested by astronomers in the past. In such a state, the particles inside the star would be completely compacted together, and such a star is called a neutron star. This star would be invisible because the escape velocity is greater than that of light. However, it might still exert a gravitational attraction depending whether or not you consider gravity waves to travel with the speed of light or not. Another way of looking at this is from the general relativity point of view. And if you imagine a huge rubber sheet with a cannonball resting upon it, you will find that the rubber sheet bends underneath the cannonball. 
To correspond to our neutron star, you must imagine the cannonball dropping completely through the rubber sheet at some stage, and the rubber sheet reforming after the cannonball has passed through. In other words, you would see no visible effects on the rubber sheet, and in the same way you would see no visible effects in the space once the star had dropped through. We think that this is the way white dwarfs end their lives. By contracting within their Schwarzschild radius, as it is known, they ultimately disappear from the universe. Now, listeners, if you have any comments or questions, do please write to us. We'd be happy to hear from you, whether it's for inclusion in The Sound of Astronomy or not. We'd also be very pleased to receive taped contributions, which of course would be returned to you immediately after re-recording. The address, The Sound of Astronomy, 4 Green Moor Link, Winchmore Hill, London, N21. And so we come to the end of this edition of The Sound of Astronomy. Featured in this edition were David Marks of the Hartebirsuk Satellite Tracking Station in South Africa, John Marsh of the Croydon Astronomical Society, and Mr. E. W. H. Selwyn of Kodak Limited. The Sound of Astronomy was compiled, produced, and directed by Hazel Joyce, Adrian Egan, and Robin Skadrill, and edited by Jeffrey Lindon. This has been a JAS production.